I invite you to turn in your Bibles to Job chapter 2, Job chapter 2, and we're going to be looking at several verses, so you'll need a Bible. If you're going to follow along, the guys have some. They're going to make their way to the back. If you need a Bible, then get their attention, and they'll get one of those Bibles to you. It's marked at Job chapter 2 for you. Job chapter 2. Now, many of you have heard the adage, failing to plan is planning to fail. Overall, that's something good to keep in mind, that looking ahead and planning for what you reasonably expect to happen is wise. But there are some things that, plan and prepare though we might, we're still not ready for what actually happens. For example, Kim and I had our first child, Lainey, who's now 21. We had her several years after we had originally planned. And that's because we suffered four miscarriages over a several-year period in our mid-20s and early 30s. But what it meant was that we had a long while to prepare for the time that the Lord would give us a child, if indeed that was in his sovereign will. And so we prepared. We prepared personally by reading many, many books, books by Christian and secular authors alike. We had many discussions together about our views of parenting and how we would handle various situations. And we prepared not only personally, but we also readied our home to receive our first child. With the baby's room appointed with all the furniture and the toys and the decorations to make it a, an inviting and a happy place. So we were completely prepared with how to feed and change and clothe and rock and sing and correct and put our baby to bed when the blessed arrival was celebrated on February 7 of 1995. I remember at the hospital as we were leaving that on that cold winter February day, it was my job to go and warm up the car, pull it to the front of the hospital as we utilized the car seat for the very first time. Because it was winter, we were worried about the bitter cold that day, so the baby was bundled so much, it's a wonder she could breathe. And the car felt like 100 degrees, but I kept it on full blast all the way home. When we got home in the afternoon, and each of us took turns holding her, and some family also stopped in to do the same, and then by late evening, we were exhausted, and especially, of course, Kim. So long around 10 o'clock, we were more than ready for bed that night. And we put her in her precious bedtime outfit, carefully laid her in her perfectly prepared crib with small walls of quilting and pillows around her to make her feel snug. We laid her there, we kissed her little face, and we went to our room, thankful for her and her health and all that had transpired over those last couple of days, but really the last several years. All was prepared, and all was good, until I heard some noise from the baby's room. I went to investigate, and it was the baby crying. And I thought to myself, how can you be crying in this beautiful room, in this exquisite crib, and that darling little outfit you're wearing? But apparently none of that meant anything to her. She just kept crying. And louder and constantly. And my mind was racing to all the books we read and all the discussions we'd had. 
And so I went to our room to consult with Kim. And she was completely out. She's drained from nine months of pregnancy and now labor and delivery and a busy first day. So it's me and the baby, one-on-one. And it turns out I'm not prepared. I take her in my arms and downstairs and I sit on the couch as I hold her. And I place my feet on the edge of the sofa so that my knees are propped up and I place the baby there and she calms down. And there's this absolutely beautiful little face looking at me and seemingly content with this new arrangement for about a minute. And she starts crying again, mouth open as wide as it can be, screaming as loud as she can. And so I sing to her. And that makes her cry more. And so I held her and I walked with her with the, the baby dance. You know what the baby dance is? And I'm saying, shh, shh, shh. That dance and that shh, shh, shh. It's familiar to all parents of infants. And somehow we made it through that first night. But this routine went on for a very long time. And so we did still more reading, mostly from other parents who tried everything to console their crying little one with advice from putting them near running water, as that sound is supposed to be soothing to some babies. We tried that, and like everything else, it worked for a short period, but after that, not so much. Some of the advice was put the car seat on the dryer machine as the motion soothes some babies. We, we did that. Not put the baby in the dryer, put it on top of the, on the dryer. But the same, same result. Or take the baby for a ride in the car in the middle of the night. And that became one of our more frequent approaches. Well, we obviously survived. And we not only survived, but by God's grace, Lainey and her parents thrived. But as much as we had prepared, we were still not prepared. There are many things in life like that. Marriage. I recommend good preparation for marriage, especially in premarital counseling. But no matter how much you prepare, it's not the same as real life when you're living in the same place and interacting with each other in situations that simply do not arise during dating. Preparation for marriage and parenting give you a framework in which you will work through whatever arises And that framework, that foundational preparation is invaluable in getting you through whatever comes up. But it does not prepare you for all the specifics of what's going to happen. And those can come then as a shock to your system at times when they do happen. Now, both of those examples of marriage and parenting involve preparation or the lack of preparation for two blessings. Marriage and children, things that those who experienced them presumably wanted and pursued. But consider how that same principle applies to things that happened to you, things that you did not choose. Difficult circumstances that arise in the course of life in a fallen world. The details of which you're simply not prepared to handle. You may have a framework for processing it. But you're not prepared for the specific thing. So a specific diagnosis of an illness, and you're told the prognosis is not good. 
an announcement from your spouse that she wants a divorce. An announcement to a child from his parents that they're getting a divorce. A notice from your employer that they're moving the plant overseas. Now, you can prepare for all of these things in general, but when the actual event comes, the surprise of it and the gravity of it may affect you in ways that will take some time to heal and to work through. We can and we should think about the possibility that next year may hold physical challenges that this year did not, and thereby will at least be somewhat prepared. We can and should each of us recognize that fallen people will act in sinful ways so that we're not completely shocked when they do so, even within our own homes. And even a small child may know of friends who do not have two parents at home or they have a parent that they visit on weekends. So the child's had occasion to think about what it would be like for his parents to break that kind of sinful news, sinful news to him. An employee is often at least vaguely aware of the ups and downs of their particular field or industry, and so it's not a total shock, and they are not totally unprepared for the loss of the job. But we can be prepared in a general sense, but still not prepared. Two weeks ago in our series in Job, we saw that Job was prepared spiritually for the calamities that befell him in a very short time. We saw that he prepared by prioritizing his relationship with God and his family. He prepared by worshiping God regularly so that when catastrophe struck, he could say in chapter 1 in verse 21, the Lord has given and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And then he could worship the Lord anyway, as was his regular practice. That's all because of that preparation. But as time went on and reality of his new circumstance set in, even this extraordinary servant of God, this man of great faith, he found himself despondent and bewildered and perplexed. But all of the turmoil that he experienced, about which we're going to begin to read today, all of that took place in the context, in the framework of the preparation that he did have. Job was prepared, and that spiritual preparation was crucial, but he, like we, was not fully prepared. It was a shock to his system that he had to process. And so today we're going to see how Job experienced grief. And how that experience parallels what we go through or will go through in the trials that God brings our ways and what our ways and calls us to endure. Let's ask God to help us then as we do. Father, here we are on another Lord's Day with Bibles open, believing that this book is your communication to us to teach us about you and about ourselves and about life in a fallen world. And Lord, we thank you that you have given these instructions to us from the lives of those who have walked with you in years past. So that we can identify with what they have gone through and what they learned about themselves and about you. Help us then to that end today, to learn about ourselves and about you through your interactions with Job and he with you. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. 
Now, you'll remember that in chapter 1, we're told that in one day, Job lost his possessions and his children. On another day, Job lost his personal health, and his body was covered with painful sores from head to toe. And as a result, this man who had great wealth and other blessings is now caught up, cut off from society and has lost his family. At the end of chapter 2 and verse 8, we're told, Job sat among the ashes, which we saw last week meant that he was at the local garbage dump, where outcasts from society stayed in order to protect the townsfolk from being infected by their various diseases. So miserable is his condition that his wife takes pity on him in verse 9 of chapter 2, and she suggests he curse God and die because death would be better than what he has. And Job replies in chapter 2 and verse 10, You're talking like a foolish woman. Shall we accept good from God and not trouble? And then we're told in verse 11, or at the end of verse 10, In all of this, Job did not sin in what he said. And chapter 2 and verse 11 then ends the chapter and a half summary of what has happened to Job. All of his losses and then his initial reaction to that. But now we're going to begin to see in chapter 2 and verse 11 and then going forward in the book, Job's thoughts and his deliberations, both internally and with his friends that come to comfort him. Verse 11 of chapter 2 says this. When Job's three friends, Eliphaz the Temanite, Bildad the Shuhite, and Zophar the Namathite, heard about all the troubles that had come upon him, they set out from their own homes and met together by agreement to go and sympathize with him and comfort him. We've got these three friends. We're told their names. We're told from where they they come. Teman is the city of Eliphaz. It was an important city in the nation of Edom, south of the Dead Sea. The Bible says of of Edom in particular, and Teman representing it, that it was known for its wisdom. So much so that the Lord asks rhetorically in Jeremiah 49, concerning Edom, this is what the Lord Almighty says, is there no longer wisdom in Teman? So here's a man, Eliphaz, who's coming from a place that's renowned for its wisdom. And then you have the Shuhite, Bildad the Shuhite. He's from an eastern tribe called Shua. It's named after one of Abraham's sons, born to him after his first wife Sarah had died. Genesis 25 says this, After Sarah's death, Abraham took another wife. She bore him a number of sons, one of which was Shua. And then this Namathite, Zophar, that town Naaman is used only in Job. But scholars believe it was a place in Arabia. Now, the particular men and their names and the particular places are not so important. Here's what's important about those names, specific names and cities being mentioned. It's to indicate that these are real historical men as this is a real historical story. These are real guys living at the time of Job. And they're coming from real places, so this is not just a story that's made up. This really happened to this man named Job. We're not told how Job made their acquaintance, but as a wealthy man, 
and the greatest man in the East, in fact, we're told in chapter 1 and verse 3, Job would have had ample opportunity to interact with many people far and wide in his business activity. The end of verse 11 says that these three had decided together to visit Job for the purpose of, end of verse 11, sympathizing with him and comforting him. The word for sympathizing in Hebrew means literally to shake the head. So they're coming for the purpose of sitting with him and just... They're coming to sympathize, literally shake the head. And both words are used together in the last chapter... And they're used of Job's brother, the last chapter of this book, chapter 42, they're used of Job's brothers and sisters who came to sympathize and console him after all that he had endured. So it appears that these three had simply decided to visit their friend in a time of difficulty, as one might visit a friend in a hospital, to offer words of encouragement. So one commentator says this, they've come largely to go through the proper motions, but it does not appear that they're ready for what they found. Because verse 12 says this. When they saw him from a distance, they could hardly recognize him. They began to weep aloud and they tore their robes and sprinkled dust on their heads. So instead of just going through the normal drill of visiting and shaking the head and offering encouragement, the friends immediately went into a more drastic form of mourning that was usually reserved for death or total disaster. They tore their robes of nobility and they wailed and they threw dust into the air. Now, this idea of showing grief in sackcloth and ashes was well known in biblical times. For example, when the holy city of Jerusalem fell into the hands of foreign invaders, the Bible says this, the elders sit on the ground in silence. They have sprinkled dust on their heads and put on sackcloth. Verse 13 says these friends then... They sat on the ground with him for seven days and seven nights. Seven days and seven nights was the customary period for mourning a death. So that's how serious this is now. They've heard about their friend Job. They've heard about him in turmoil. They've come to see him. They've made plans together to do that at a specified time. But when they arrive, they're not prepared for what they see. And they mourn as if he has died. Seven days and seven nights. Seven days was this customary period for mourning a death. First Samuel 31 says that upon the the death of, of Saul and his sons, the Bible says they buried the bones of Saul and his sons and they fasted seven days. In Ezekiel chapter 3, the Bible says, I sat among the exiles for seven days, deeply distressed. So now here's the scene. This is what's happened to Job. Here are the friends who have come to talk and comfort him, but they're not prepared for what they find. And if you don't have your outline in front of you that we've inserted in the program, I encourage you to take that out now. Because we're going to see three things about how believers then experience anguish, grief. The first I have in your outline is that believers may experience internal anguish, internal anguish. Believers may experience internal anguish. 
And so they sit there in silence, the Bible tells us. No one says a word for seven days and seven nights. And Job is there after having made the pronouncements that we read about in chapter 1 and chapter 2. In all of this, Job did not sin in what he said. Job says, naked I came into the world, naked I will leave. The Lord has given and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And he worships the Lord. And yet here he is now some time later. And he's having to process all that's happened. And the shock that has occurred to his system. He's experiencing internal anguish. Like the psalmist in Psalm 42. Who is talking to himself. When he says in Psalm 42, my soul is downcast within me. Deep calls to deep and the roar of your waterfalls, all your waves and breakers have swept over me. And in that psalm, he talks to himself, does the psalmist and asks, why are you downcast? And why is my soul so disturbed within me? And he finds the answer in that very in that very psalm. He's going through this internal anguish as Job is now. And Job's suffering is of a a particular type of suffering. It's suffering that's happened suddenly and traumatically. And Job has all the more reason to be shocked. I mean, that kind of thing happening to you in one day would shock anyone. Anyone. But Job has all the more reason to be shocked due to something I mentioned to you several weeks ago when we started our study in Job. And that is... This belief in something called retribution theology. Now we'll hear about it again in in the weeks to come, but I remind you of what that is. It's the idea that many have taken from Scripture because there are passages that seem to indicate that if you do the right thing, things turn out well. And if you don't, they don't. And so you're retributed, you're rewarded, or you're punished based upon what what you do. Well, Job was this very, very good man then. And in light of retribution theology, he deserved all the good things that he had received. All the blessings that chapter 1 tells us about. And, conversely, he did not deserve what he later received, at least according to retribution theology. So this is a shock to anyone's system to have those things happen in one day. Lose all your possessions, lose your children, and then a short time later, you find yourself physically afflicted as well. That would be a shock to anyone. When we are shocked, when we are traumatized, it affects us going forward. If you've had occasion to see someone shot, I've not had that. I don't like watching movies where people are shot because I don't like that image in my in my head. But if you've seen that live, and some of you may have, perhaps you've been in the service, perhaps you've been at the a witness to a, a crime. Those that have been in the military often come back with scenes in their heads that they can't get out because they've seen people blown up by an IED. And they go through these stages then. And that includes this internal anguish. Some of you are familiar with the what are called the five stages of grief. Denial, anger, bargaining, depression, and acceptance. I'm not going to wax psychological here too much. But just to say that there is that process that naturally happens when you've experienced something that is that shock to your system. 
You may have logical acceptance of what has happened, but there's psychological questioning about why it happened. And that's what we're going to see in chapter 3 with Job. So those that have gone through things that are a shock and, and bear images that will flash back in, in your mind. And undoubtedly, these are the kinds of things that are happening to Job as he sits there. And he's so shocked and traumatized, he, he can't even speak. And these scenes are undoubtedly going through his mind, as they do ours, when something has shocked our system. This is what I recommend to people. Some of you I've counseled and I've recommended this to you. You say, I can't get that image out of my head. And I say, do this. Think of your mind as a channel changer, a TV remote. And have a preset different channel that you're going to go to every time that scene comes up. Because that scene's going to keep coming up. It's like that commercial that you hate that shows up. But there it is. And you need to have another channel that you go to. A Philippians 4.8 kind of channel. Think on these kinds of things. And if everything were taken from you, it's not just one thing that happened to you that has a scene recurring in your mind, but everything has been taken. My possessions, my children, so now everything is going to remind you of it. And that's the situation Job is in. And so his thoughts, like our thoughts, turn inward rather than upward and outward. And now it's an analysis of us and where we are and why. Believers may experience internal anguish. But I say in your outline as well, believers may experience expressed anguish, expressed anguish. Job breaks the silence beginning in chapter three, chapter three and verse one. After this, Job opened his mouth. And it says Job opened his mouth and he cursed. Now, when you read that word cursed, you should be reminded of the confrontation that Satan had with God going back to chapter one. Because you remember that Satan had said to God, if you take his stuff, he only worships you because of the stuff you give him and what you do for him, not for you. You take that stuff and he will curse you to your face. You'll remember that Job's wife said in chapter two in verse nine, curse God. And die. And now chapter 3 and verse 1. After this, Job opened his mouth and cursed. But he didn't curse God. In anguish, he curses the day of his birth. He has this reaction now. As he's been internalizing all of this. He's been thinking about this over a, a long period of time. By the way, not just the seven days. Because it took some time for those friends to hear about what had happened to Job. And for them to make preparations to get to Job. So Job has been internalizing this, has been thinking like about this for at least several weeks. And as he's internalized it, now it finally comes to his tongue. And he curses the day of his birth. We see this same kind of thing with the Lord Jesus. In agony upon the cross. And Jesus cries out, you'll remember, my God, my God, 
Why have you forsaken me? And in chapter 3, beginning in verse 11, we'll see in a bit, Job has a series of why questions that he's been brooding about during this time. And so believers go through this process. Job is going through this process of internal anguish. And then that's verbalized and expressed anguish. And I want to spend the remainder of our time on this third point, And that is, believers may experience deep anguish. Deep anguish. Something has happened. Something has happened traumatic, a shock to our system. We have the framework of truth and belief. That is going to protect us and see us through. But we are naturally going to go through the way we think about this and the way we verbalize this. And that anguish may be very deep, so deep that we might, I say in the outline, question the fact of our existence. Question the fact of our existence. That is, question why we were born at all. It can be that deep. That a believer who knows the right answer, ultimately, but finds his or herself asking questions about their very existence. Verse 3 of chapter 3. May the day of my birth perish, and the night that said a boy is conceived. That day, may it turn to darkness. May God above not care about it. May no light shine on it. May gloom and utter darkness claim it once more. May a cloud settle over it. May blackness overwhelm it. That night, may thick darkness seize it. May it not be included among the days of the year, nor be entered on any of the months. May that night be barren. May no shout of joy be heard in it. So here is Job making this, of course, unrealistic Desire, stating this unrealistic desire. I wish I had never been born, but of course he already is. And his language with that unrealistic desire for an action that he can't accomplish reflects the intensity of the pain that he's feeling. In verse 5 he says, May gloom and utter darkness claim the day of my birth once, once more. That phrase, utter darkness, is the same phrase that's used in Psalm 23. Most of you are familiar with Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not be in want. But then in verse number four of that psalm, the psalmist says, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I fear no evil for you are with me. That phrase shadow of death is this utter darkness that Job speaks of in verse five of chapter three. And in verse 5, as he speaks of that utter darkness, he was referring then to an especially dark shadow that would overwhelm and obscure the sight of the day of his birth. Just like a, a solar eclipse turns the daylight into darkness. He goes on in verse 8 to say this. May those who curse days curse that day. Those who are ready to rouse Leviathan. May those who curse days curse that day. What's that about? Well, there were actually people in biblical times, in Old Testament biblical times, who were professional cursers, believe it or not. And we say cursing, we don't mean swear words. We mean imprecations. We mean a malediction upon someone or something, cursing a person or a situation. You have an example of this in Numbers, in your Bible, Numbers. 
chapters 22 to 24, Numbers 22 to 24, and a man named Balaam. And Balaam was actually summoned to curse Israel because he was one of these professional cursers. And so in verse 8, when Job says, may those who curse days curse that day, may those who do this regularly, this is a day, if ever there was a thing to curse, it's the day I was born. And those who are ready to rouse Leviathan, Leviathan, we'll see when we get to chapters 40 and 41, is a creature that is like a dinosaur. And those who are ready to rouse this, this monster to, in effect, eat that day so that it disappears. Verse 9, may its morning stars become dark. May it wait for daylight in vain and not see the first day rays of dawn. When he refers to morning stars in verse 9, that's probably Venus and Mercury, which often appear before sunrise, and even perhaps the fainter, more distant planets as well. Now you see how deep then is this anguish. And he's lamenting that he was ever born, the fact of his own existence. That's how bad it's become for Job. As he internalizes and thinks about it. But notice this. He's not taking his own life. He's questioning, but he still has hope that there are answers. Do you all see this? You see, Job is saying, it'd be better if I was never born, but he's not committing suicide. Why? Because he still has hope. Why? Because of chapter 1 and chapter 2 and what they tell us about the framework, the context of the belief that Job had in God. So he's not taking his own life. He's questioning to be sure. But he still has hope that there are answers to those questions. Have you ever heard the phrase, what you don't know can hurt you? What Job doesn't know is part of what's hurting him here. Do you remember that Job doesn't know why any of this has happened? We have Bibles now to read the story and we read about the contest between Satan and God. But Job doesn't know about any of this. And so as Job is internalizing all of this, he can't see any reason for it. And so that's a torment to him. Believers may experience deep anguish. We might question the fact of our existence. Believers can come to the point that they say, I don't understand it at all. I don't understand why it's happening. And it would be better if I were not here. But it's the belief that you have in the true and living God, who is the good and great creator and redeemer that will sustain you in those lowest of points as it does for Job. So believers may experience this deep anguish, might question the fact of our existence, but I say in your outline, we might question the reason for our existence as well. The fact of our existence, just why was I born at all? But then the reason for our existence, all right, so I was born. And the mistake was made of me being born into my so-called life. So now why? What's the point then of my existence now that it's been allowed to happen? Verse 11. Why did I not perish at birth and die as I came from the womb? All right, so I was born, but what's the point of this life after birth? Why were there knees to receive me and breasts that I might be nursed? 
And when he says there, you know, then, then why was all of this, why did all this happen? Why was I born, one, but then having been born, why wasn't I just left to die? Why was there a midwife there to receive me at my mother's knee when I was born, when I came from the womb? That's what he's referring to in all likelihood when he says, why were there knees to receive me? Because it was common for children to be delivered by a midwife, and that midwife would receive the baby then from the, from the womb at the knee then of the, of the mother. And you see this in Exodus chapter 1. You remember that Pharaoh had ordered that all the male children of Israel be, be killed, and he ordered the Hebrew midwives to carry this out. And so the Bible says, The king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, When you're helping the Hebrew women during childbirth on the delivery stool, if you see that the baby is a boy, kill him. But if it's a girl, let her let her live. Now, the other thing it may refer to is that it was a custom to, after the baby was born, to bring the, the baby to one of the parents, the father, the mother, and pa- place that child on the knee. We see an example of this with Joseph's grandsons who were brought to him. Genesis 50, Joseph's grandsons were placed at birth on his, on his knees. So the idea is here is, I was born, why was there anybody to take care of me? Why didn't you just let me die? In fact, Job's name, the name Job means no father. No father. So why didn't you just, why did that just play out? Nobody here to take care of me, nobody here to care for me, because that would have been better than this. Verse 13. For if that happened, for now I would be lying lying down in peace. If I'd been allowed to die at birth early on, I'd be lying down in peace. I'd be asleep and at rest with kings and rulers of the earth who built for themselves palaces now lying in ruins, with princes who had gold who filled their houses with silver. Or why was I not hidden away in the ground like a stillborn child, like an infant who never saw the light of day? There the wicked cease from turmoil, and there the weary are at rest. Captives also enjoy their ease. They no longer hear the slave drivers shout. The small and the great are there, and the slaves are freed from their owners. So in verses 13 through 19, Job is saying the grave, in Hebrew, Sheol, the realm of the dead, would be better for me. It's the place where all of these characters that he's laid out, kings and princes, slaves, Children who die in infancy, they are all there and they are freed from the misery of this life. So Genesis 37 speaks of the grave or Sheol. When a father says of his son, I will go down to Sheol in mourning for my son when I die. And so here Job's envisioning a place of peace and rest. And he thinks that such a situation would be much better than his present intolerable condition in which he can find neither peace nor rest, according to verse 26 of chapter 3. Even captives, verse 18, enjoy their ease. They no longer hear the slave driver shout. The idea here is then you have a, a taskmaster, a slave driver, and he's shouting instructions at the slave. We see examples of this in the Exodus with the Egyptian taskmasters over the Israelite slaves. The Bible says, the Lord said, I've indeed seen the misery of my people in Egypt. I've heard them crying out because of their slave drivers. Job goes on to question why. In verse 20, 
Why is light given to those in misery and life to the bitter of soul? To those who long for death that does not come, who search for it more than for hidden treasure, who are filled with gladness and rejoice when they reach the grave. Why is life given to a man whose way is hidden, whom God has hedged in? You see all the why questions. I believe. But why? Why is it like this? And those why questions are still, and it's important for you to see this, they are still questions of belief. Because he understands that there's a purpose. He understands that ultimately there's a purpose. And that's why this doesn't make sense, because I can't see purpose. And that's why he's asking. So the mere fact that he's asking the questions, particularly in light of chapters 1 and 2, in that context, in that framework, are what still give him hope in his despair. In verse 23, he asks, Why is life given to a man whose way is hidden, whom God has hedged in? In the Old Testament, wisdom books like Proverbs, Job is, is one of those. In Ecclesiastes, Song of Solomon, in Old Testament wisdom literature, that term way, the Hebrew word, frequently refers to God's path of wisdom that leads to life. So, for example, in Proverbs chapter 4, it states that the path of the righteous grows clearer and clearer until the perfect day. And so Job is asking, why is life given to a man whose way, whose path that God's supposed to trace out appears hidden? I don't know why it's going like this. So Proverbs 4.18, the path of the righteous is like the morning sun, shining ever brighter till the full light of day. By contrast to that, Job's asking, why is life given to a man whose way is hidden? Who cannot understand where his painful path is proceeding? In chapter 1 and verse 10, Satan says that God has placed a protective hedge around Job by blessing him so generously. At the end of chapter 23, Job uses the same picture to talk about a hedge, but not a hedge of generosity but rather his feeling that God has trapped and restricted him. This metaphor that he's using may well refer to the practice of a shepherd constructing a thorny hedge to enclose and protect his flock from intruders. And as Job considers his unceasing difficulty and his adversity, he feels that God has confined him, not for his protection, but so that he cannot escape his restrictions. He feels trapped and imprisoned by God. See an example of this kind of hedging in Hosea chapter 2, where God says, I'm going to stop the unfaithful woman from continuing in her deeds. I will block her path with thorn bushes, wall her in so that she cannot find her way. And Job, who's not unfaithful, quite the opposite, but he's saying that's the way I feel, confined and blocked in. But this is still, now hear me, friends, this is still the anguish of belief. It's still the anguish of belief because the assumption in all of this for the believer is that there's supposed to be a point. There's supposed to be a reason. There's supposed to be a purpose. So believing grief is different than unbelieving nihilistic grieving. Do you understand what I mean when I say nihilistic? All of life is empty. All of life is for naught. If you're someone who holds to that kind of philosophy, then of course it makes sense that there's no point to what's going on with you. 
because there's no sense to life at all anyway. But Job doesn't believe that. Job believes there is. And that's what creates even more anguish for him. I've used this formula a number of times in teaching and in counseling. It's this. Expectations minus reality equals trouble. Expectations minus reality result in trouble, difficulty. Now, what do I mean by that? That the expectations that you bring to a venture, to your life, to some relationship, whatever it is, you have expectations. But then you have the reality, and there's always a gap between the expectations and the reality. And that gap, depending on how it's handled, can result in great difficulty, great trouble for the individual. So some people become angry. Some people become depressed. Some people move away from God during that realization that there is this gap and it may never be closed. So Job has these expectations, but he has the expectations of a believer. That's the good news. He's got these expectations, but then there's the reality of life and there's the gap between them. And now he's having to deal with the gap. He's doing that internally. He's doing that verbally. And it's a deep anguish for him. But it's the anguish of belief. That's why I say in your take-home truth, believing can intensify grieving. Believing can intensify grieving. Why? Because I believe it's supposed to be this. I believe that one day it will be this. But then there's the reality of what it is. Now, with all of that, what do we as Christians do as we look at the anguish, the grieving, that process that righteous Job went through? We know ultimately, friends, as we're going to see as we proceed through Job, ultimately the questions of why are not just questions of why in the abstract, but they are questions of why God. Why God did you do this? Why God have you placed me here? And that question, why God, ultimately gets to this, what kind of God are you? Are you a good God? Now, Job didn't know all that had happened behind the scenes, as I've said. And Job also was on the other side of the cross. Job lived a couple of thousand years before the cross. And here we are a couple of thousand years after the cross. And remember I said what you don't know can hurt you? But what you know can help you. And when you ask that question about are you a good God? Guess where you can look? To the cross. Is he a good God in the midst of everything you're going through? Look to the cross. Because on the cross, and all the run up to the cross, God himself became man, and he endured suffering himself, and he endured the agony of the cross himself. And so whatever you might be thinking in your anguish about God and questioning about God, You're to look back at the cross and you're to remember this God is good all the time. And His purposes are good. 
all the time. Job's going to come to that realization. But he goes through the process of believing grief. We're going to go to the Lord in prayer. As we do, I encourage you to take your grief, your questions, to Jesus at the cross. And if you don't have a relationship with this God who came and died for you and endured the horrors of the cross, if you don't have a relationship with him, then you don't have that context of belief that Job had in order to see him through the shock, the trauma, the difficulty of his circumstances. But you can have that relationship by realizing you're a sinner, recognizing that Christ has paid for your sin so that you can have a relationship with God. Repent. God, I give you my life. I'm going to go your way, not my way. And you receive Jesus Christ into your life. You do that when we bow. And you pray from your heart to God, Lord, I'm a sinner. And I'm experiencing the effects in a fallen world of what sin has done, both my sin and the sin of others. I may have all sorts of things that are happening in my life right now that I didn't do directly, but they're all part of fallenness, and I'm one of the fallen. And so I ask you to forgive me and apply the blood of Jesus that covers all sin, past, present, and future to me personally. And I'm going to follow you. I give you my life. And those of you who know Jesus but are going through difficulty, give your grief to him and acknowledge to him that you believe he is the good God who came and died for you. Let's pray together. Father, sometimes when your people open their mouths to you, they open, they start to speak, and nothing comes out. Sometimes the pain is so deep we don't know what to say. We're in internal anguish. And then when we can say, when we can speak, sometimes it's only, oh God. Oh God, help me. And yet, Lord, you heal. You heal over time. You remind us of what we believe and that framework, that context in which we experience the grief of a fallen world. And as we have then more lucid moments, we're able to see more clearly, then we're able to again sing praise to you and remember who we are in relation to you. And so, Lord, I pray that there are brothers and sisters here now who are seeing where they are in these various stages and the circumstances that you have brought them into. And that they're being reminded, as Job had to be reminded, That you are good as he asked his why questions. That we are here for your good purpose. That we were born for your good purpose. That our lives proceed through all of the